expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Ross, thanks for being here. Good evening. And also in studio with us today is Michael Boyden. He is the Managing Director of Taiwan Asia Strategy Consulting. Uh, and among many things that he does there, one of those is he uh, hosts the Taiwan Business Leaders Forum. So uh, kind of a similar uh, set of circumstances, talking about Taiwan, current events, and all that. Uh, and so we're lucky to have him here to uh, lend his thoughts to our program. Thank you, Keith. Good to be here. Today on the show, we're taking a look at Taiwan-China ties after what could be the final high-ranking cross-strait summit of the Ma administration, uh, which wrapped up this week, more changes to the national health insurance system, and what exactly is behind Taiwan's sagging economy. But first, presidential election politics. Uh, We're going back to the drama in the KMT. The ruling party is, of course, set to hold a special party congress tomorrow to take up a motion on removing Hong Shouju from the party's candidacy, after which they are expected to replace her with Chairman Eric Ju. Uh, and so there's not much for me to set up here because uh, we kind of knew all of this was coming for a while now, uh, and not much has been going on uh, other than a series of apologies from Eric Ju to Hong uh, over his handling of the situation and uh, Hong's occasional pot shots at the party over Jews' handling of the situation. So uh, I, I feel like uh, I'm going to end up asking the same set of questions today that I did last week, but uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear uh, both of your takes on this. Uh, tomorrow's removal vote is expected to pass pretty easily uh, for most people, and Hong has said that she will respect the party's wishes. Clearly, you know, she's not happy about this, but she says she will respect the party's wishes. So uh, is this what you guys are expecting to happen? Is this uh, going to be uh, a relatively painful process tomorrow? Well, it's certainly what we all expect to happen. Whether or not it's painful remains to be seen. There's certainly going to be some party members, members of the public, members of the media who are going to criticize the KMT for doing this. And, and I would expect those voices to be quite loud tomorrow and in the days afterwards. But the key thing here is is what is the Kuomintang going to do afterwards? Where do they go from here? So they have a new candidate, uh, assuming it's it's uh, Eric Julie Lun. Uh, then it's going to be up to him to make his case to the voters. Uh, his poll numbers, one-on-one against high, are, are still uh, quite quite far apart. Uh, can he say something that will change that is is really where he needs to take the, the discussion towards and, and move away now from the removal of, of Hong Xiu Zhou. Yeah, so, uh, Michael, what do you see here? Is, is this uh, transition going to uh, happen swiftly? Is it going to happen completely? However swiftly it happens, it, it's all happening too late. Mm. Uh, this uh, really ought to have been sorted out l- a long time ago. And it's a very sad reflection on the state of the, the party's organization that it's happening now, uh, where we're not quite in the final run into the election, but we're getting pretty close. So uh, Mr. Chu is going to have to work, assuming it is him, uh, becomes the candidate, is going to have to work very hard at, uh, at, at closing that gap that the polls indicate between uh, himself and, and Ms. Tsai. Having said that, uh, I don't believe that uh, Miss Tsai's election is the foregone conclusion that many assume it to be. I think that uh, 
a great many people have done very well out of uh, KMT policies um, uh, bringing uh, closer relation, closer commercial relations with the mainland, and uh, they a lot of people would like this to continue. Mm. Well, I mean, if you do look at the polling, uh, it, it, it does look like she does uh, have a, a pretty commanding lead. So would the scenario be uh, those, uh, that support for uh, Sung kind of evaporates? You know, the, the third-party bid, it evaporates and it all goes to the KMT? Is that what you're expecting to see? Well, uh, we, we don't know if, if Mr. Sung is going to uh, be, have a successful run or not uh, in terms of pulling in a decent share of the vote. If he does pull in a decent share, more of it's going to come from the KMT than from the DPP. Uh, but the question is, is that going to happen or is he a, a busted flush? Is mm-hmm. he yesterday's man? You know, and So uh, we, that we don't know. The, the polls here are pretty unreliable. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't place really too much credence on them. I believe that for a lot of voters, they might want to vote uh, DPP with their hearts, but they'll vote KMT with their heads. Well, one thing uh, Drew has going for him is he actually beats high in an election before in 2010. For Indeed. Uh, what was formerly Taipei County and became New Taipei City mm-hmm. and, and the first mayoral election for New Taipei City. He, he beat Tsai Ing-wen and actually beat her by a, a fairly decent margin, about 53% to 47%. Well, and that gets at a question that I wanted to put to you guys is really how much I- is this move going to help? Uh, when we discussed this last week, I think the, the general consensus is the switch to Chu uh, is is largely seen as a way to uh, help those local elections more than the presidential election. Obviously, having uh, Hong at the top of the ticket is not helping in some of those southern districts. Uh, but uh, how how far do you guys expect that to go uh, in in both the presidential and those local elections? It's very hard to analyze. Uh, as Michael said, polling can be very unreliable, especially polling within legislative constituencies. Uh, in in the last four or five legislative UN elections, we, we, we sometimes do see a large swing, especially uh, in 2001, the first legislative UN election after Chen Shui-bian was elected president in 2000, there was a large swing over to the DPP. Uh, so there, there is a possibility for this top-of-the-ticket effect, as Michael mentioned, where a, D, a strong DPP candidate, in this case Tsai Ing-wen, could, all, could help substantially with their legislative UN elections. And that's also a consideration here for the KMT making this relatively late change at the top of the ticket with their presidential candidate is to try and hold some minimum number, if not a majority, at least a sufficient number to deny uh, the the DPP a a, a supermajority in the legislative UN. And that would severely limit the Kuomintang's ability to act as a loyal opposition. Yeah, the uh, the KMT are somewhat in danger of losing their their this kind of built-in majority in the LY that they they they've had, and uh, even if uh, Mr. Ju uh, is doesn't succeed in capturing the presidency, he may well succeed in in uh, preserving that majority in in the LY. Um, but this is all pretty much up in the air now. Uh, we have to see. Uh, that Mr. Jew is is in fact going to be the the candidate looks pretty pretty sure, uh, and what the public perception of all that is, and whether it's you know uh, all too late. Another angle that that's important in, in all these calculations is who is Eric Jew going to select as his running mate? And hmm. typically, a, a vice presidential candidate it should not change the outcome or, or voter choices, but it, it could probably help. Mr. Ju, if he did have a popular 
running mate, and there, there are some obvious names in the mix. Um, so that that's also part of the calculations in the coming days. It would probably sub- help him substantially if he did identify his running mate, assuming it's someone who, who is relatively popular, uh, not somebody who's disliked by the public, obviously. If he could do that sooner, it would help him to build his case why voters uh, should take a new look at the Kuo Dong. Well, I like this. Uh, I feel like most people have already kind of thought of the election as being over, but you guys are saying uh, there's a lot more election left, so uh, we're going to have to continue to watch this. Uh, but we're going to move on to our next story. This week saw what is likely to be the final high-level meeting between Taiwan and mainland China officials uh, of the Mai administration. And uh, I think that uh, if we had a chance to ask 2013 Ma. I'm pretty sure this week's meeting would be a far cry from his expectations of where cross-strait relations would be at the end of his term. Uh, You know, they're not dotting the I's and crossing the T's on a trade and services agreement. They were not clinking champagne glasses to celebrate the successful signing of a trade and goods deal. Although those goals were probably discussed, but, you know, they still seem somewhat distant at this point. Uh, Instead, they were taking up somewhat mundane issues, you know, ID cards, flight routes. Uh, and we don't know exactly what happened in there, but uh, I mean, just as an outside observer, it just seems pretty distant from uh, some of the loftier topics that uh, we heard from earlier. Or uh, maybe that's a misperception on, on, on my part. Uh, Ross, what did you see there? Well, the key thing is that they're still talking. They're still talking about some, even if they're mundane and technical, they are important issues. So the ability for Chinese passengers to transit via Taipei is good for Taiwan's airlines. It's good for the economy here in Taiwan to have more people coming in, of course. Uh, the, the flight route issue would save uh, uh, fuel costs substantially for the airlines, uh, and that would hopefully result in ticket prices that at least don't rise or even drop in price. Uh, the, the ID issues become somewhat political, although uh, ha- having better access through port points of entry is something that's good for Taiwanese travelers who are going to China for business or tourism. It's just a positive. You know, you're, you're right. The, the services agreement or the goods agreement have not been signed, and they're probably not going to be signed before the end of the Ma administration or implemented. Uh, but, but the fact that they're still talking is, is a positive. And, and the key thing here is, uh, as you said, you know, this could be the last meeting in the Ma administration. When is the first meeting of the new administration going to be, whether Tsai wins or a Guomidang candidate wins. We're, we're looking at a substantially far-off point in time in the future if this really is going to be the last meeting, keeping in, in mind the long transition next spring because the presidential election is in January, but the new president takes office in May. So the major negative here is that, that you know, the major negative, it's not that they talked about mundane issues so much as when is the next round of talks going to be and, and how do we take things forward even if they are mundane. Well, the key word uh, that was coming out a lot from these talks is institutionalization. They were talking about how do we institutionalize uh, these talks and make sure that they uh, continue into future administrations, that there's some kind of standard practice here of, you know, holding these high-level talks, no matter who's in power. Uh, do you guys think that something like that is, well, it sounds like, Ross, you're saying that you don't uh, see that really taking shape. Uh, Michael, what do you see? Well, I, uh, what I see is that uh, if Miss Tsai wins the presidential contest, uh, the day she walks into uh, on May the twentieth to to um, take it up, she's going to get a huge reality check. And the reality is that Taiwan must continue trading with with the mainland, with China. No two ways about it. 
And uh, so how are they going to do that? Because if, uh, if they try to, heaven forbid, shut China out of uh, trade considerations, there's going to be a lot of very, very angry people. And uh, so, you know, that they, they've got to have a policy going forward. I don't know if they do have, but they've, they, if they don't have one, they're going to have to formulate one pretty quick. If they don't have a policy for going forward with trade with China, they, they're going to have to get down to it. Uh, Taiwan has to trade with the, the world's, we presume, second biggest economy. Don't altogether trust the Chinese figures. Uh, and uh, in the same way as the Canadians have to trade with the USA and the Mexicans and, and a whole lot of others as their biggest market. Uh, and, well, and, and so sorting that all out uh, before this uh, election comes uh, is going to be pretty important. Uh, but I guess we don't really have too much information on, on, on what that's going to look like yet, because, uh, I mean, the... It's kind of a one-word policy right now. It's uh, status quo, and uh, we're not quite sure what that's going to mean. Well, the interesting thing about um, Tsai Ing-wen's trade policy and, and the reality check that she's going to face, as Michael described it, is recently she made a major uh, speech talking about a renewed focus on South and Southeast Asia as a destination for Taiwanese companies to invest and do business. Now, of course, that, that resulted in... in some unhappy responses from the current government because they do feel they have made an effort to increase market access for Taiwanese companies in South and Southeast Asia. And to be fair, the government has done that. So they were rightly upset by, by Tsai Ing-wen's suggestion that they weren't doing anything. But if she's looking for, or if we're looking for her to state her policy, uh, the, she seems to be focused on South and Southeast Asia rather than China, which, as Michael indicated, then could be a big concern for Taiwanese companies. All right. Well, uh, so it seems to all hinge on the election results today. Uh, so more questions than answers is what we're looking at. But we're going to have to end out the first half there. When we come back, we're talking about the economy, specifically why it's so bad. So stay tuned for that on Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Ross Feingold and Michael Boyden. Kicking off the second half, the economy is what we're talking about. And, well, what to say about it? It's not looking too great, I guess, is the main thing to say about it. The Financial Supervisory Commission Chairman, Zhang Ming Zhong, yesterday called on Taiwan's workforce to roll up their sleeves, put on their game faces, and work harder so that the nation's economy could grow at an astounding 1% this year. They're trying to beat 1%. Uh, those comments, of course, follow Zhonghua Institute for Economic Research's forecast that GDP growth this year would stand at 0.9%. So 1% might actually be something of a victory, and it's never a good sign when 1% is something of a victory, uh, especially when only uh, a couple of months ago that uh, very same Zhonghua Institute was predicting a 3% growth for the year. So, uh, you know, that's a pretty short span of time to see quite a big slide. So uh, what's going on? What, what's been going on in the last three months that has uh, made the economy look this way? Well, what's, what's been going on is uh, the, the global economy has transitioned into what uh, the ever-percipient uh, Christine Lagarde of the IMF calls the new mediocre. Mm. And uh, what we, we are in now, an era of, of mediocre uh, growth in terms of GDP and grade globally. Um, Taiwan 
does and always will do live by manufacturing and selling stuff to other people uh, as exports. Uh, that's the way it is. It has been. That's the way it's going to be. And so when global trade uh, declines, when global demand declines because of poor economic performance elsewhere in key economies, the EU, uh, some of the BRICS nations, for example, uh, Taiwan very quickly feels the pinch. Mm. Now, uh, but there is underlying uh, resilience here. Um, part of the reason for the the uh, the, the apparent uh, collapse in GDP growth from three point something percent down to zero point nine, or if everybody does roll up their sleeves, one percent, <laughs> um, is that uh, we're coming off in terms and in the context of the new mediocre, we're coming off a reasonably high base last year, three point seven percent. So. And the first the first quarters of the year started very well, three point seven percent again. Uh, and then things started going pear shaped in in mm -hmm. Q two uh, in response to global demand. That's right. what it is. It's not mm -hmm. a question of people here not working or Taiwan isn't competitive. Mm -hmm. The companies aren't making the right things. They are. Mm -hmm. But this is a this is a, a bigger question than just what's happening within our own borders. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, would you agree with that? Are we really looking at external factors, and that's uh, basically the whole answer as to what's going on right now? There's no, no doubt, given Taiwan's role as, as an exporting nation, but but it raises the question that that uh, inevitably comes up in these situations, and, and is always relevant when talking about Taiwan and comparing Taiwan to its neighbors, which is what kind of policies will the current or, or uh, obviously the incoming government next spring have in place or implement to change the investment environment and make it a place where both local companies are more comfortable investing their money and in, in, in building their manufacturing facilities here in Taiwan rather than moving it to other locations, and also, of course, for foreign investment as well. So there's there's legitimate concerns about the long-term investment environment, and, and you know, none of us want to be having the same conversation again a year from now about a, a, slow, a slow growth and a poor outlook going into 2017. Uh, so there's legitimate questions about the investment environment here, and we see that with a lot of policy issues, so, which you often talk about on this program, and, and policy changes and, and policy uncertainty. And, and these things are just bad for the investment environment, and it's not going to help this situation over the long term because when the global economy does improve, what, what we will see, because we've seen it in, in past years, is some of Taiwan's neighbors will be growing at a much more – a uh, faster pace than Taiwan mm -hmm. will. So even if we recover here in Taiwan to 2 or 3%, you know, we'll still be looking at some of its neighbors that are growing more rapidly, and we need to find solutions to that kind of concern as well. Mm. I think the phrase the new mediocre applies uh, universally across the board. Um, with respect, Ross, we're not going to see stellar growth uh, anywhere uh, around the globe, except in one or two places where they are coming off a very low base, Vietnam, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, that's what we have to get used to. That's what we have to get our heads around. And Taiwan has uh, had for a long time and still has, and I believe will continue to have, leadership or near leadership uh, position in some key industrial sectors. And uh, they're not about to relinquish that. Uh, other, uh, we hear a lot about competition, for example, from South Korea. Uh, yes, uh, there are, there are, they do compete in, in some areas, fairly well-defined areas, but there's a lot of comp complementarities as well. And the South Korean economy isn't 
isn't doing at all well either at this stage. Nor are a lot of the key economies in Southeast Asia, uh, Singapore, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, for example. So this is... Um, the, this is universal. This is this is across the globe, and uh, it's a situation that uh, I believe the Taiwanese economy can cope with. Uh, we've been there before. There's certain underlying resilience here, and uh, that, as I mentioned, that leadership or near leadership position in key industrial sectors is basically going to see us through. All right. So hopefully we see uh, some growth there by the end of this year, but. Uh Really hard to say at this point. Last up on the show, well, we talked about it last week, but there is more going on to discuss in Taiwan's healthcare system. The government announced yesterday that it will raise the threshold of eligibility for supplementary insurance premiums. Uh, so, uh, Ross, for those of us not in the know, can you explain uh, a little bit just what that's going to mean? Well, uh, it's going to mean uh, lower uh, pay-ins by by a lot of individuals, so that that's that's a benefit, uh, and and I think generally people are comfortable with the service quality of of the uh, national health insurance program. Uh, the, the the key point here, though, is that revenue incoming revenue to the system is going to drop. Mm. This could create a long term problem. Uh, so some people are accusing the the government of announcing this because of the election and some way to reflect well on uh, the current. KMT government. Uh, some people say this was done simply as, as a part of the cycle of uh, regularly adjusting rates, uh, and there's been a lot of that. Uh, one of the concerns that's also been identified, though, is that there's such a, a confusion with different rates in different parts of uh, the system, what you pay for certain services, what you pay for the supplementary services, uh, the taxes apply to different aspects of, of one's life that don't seem to have any relevance to health care. Uh, uh, Healthcare tax on stock trading, healthcare tax on rental income. Uh, so sometimes the the collection method uh, could be questioned because it, it just creates a lot of administrative work. Uh, the, in a way, this adds a little bit more confusion to the process. I think. Right, and as you mentioned, uh, I, the projection that I'm seeing is that you know even though, as we discussed last week, there is a huge surplus in funds for the uh, National Health Insurance Administration uh, by 2017. With these changes, uh, it's expected to go into deficit. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like uh, solid planning. It seems like there's other motivations behind this. Well, yes, could be, <laughs> but I have an interest in this because I pay a supplementary national health mm -hmm. insurance premium. But it's very small money, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm basically happy to do that because I, I believe that we uh, we all get a good value out of the national health system here, by and large. Uh, I've certainly, you know, um, used the system several times and uh, for various various needs, and uh, I've always been uh, pretty satisfied with the treatment I've got. So I don't think it, it's that big an issue uh, for people. I don't see, uh, and therefore I don't see either that there's a lot of political kudos to be gained by announcing the government announcing it at this stage, if that is their motivation. Right. If you yeah. were going to game the system, you'd think you'd do it in a more dramatic way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so when we're talking about the, the this type of income that we're talking about here, it, it's secondary income. Uh, so, so what kind of categories is that? I mean, it's it's stock stuff, it's it's property. It's not necessarily something uh, that everybody is affected by, right? True. Uh, in my case, it, it's uh, levied on the the compensation I get for a, a part time position, mm -hmm. so with a state owned company. So, uh, but it's very small. 
two percent, something like that. So it's you know not. I'd rather not pay it, but (laughs) (laughs) all things being equal, (laughs) but uh, I'm not. I'm not going to really not going to complain. Uh, so, so you, neither of you see this having uh, a, a, a big impact on uh, the long-term trajectory of uh, Taiwan's healthcare system. Well, they, they, as, as we talked about, it might have some impact on, on the finances of, of the system. But the other story for the health system that's been in the news recently, especially coming out of some recent events, is, is the number of doctors or, or, or the lack of doctors in, in certain specialty areas. There was a story this week about... Uh, obstetricians who who have to work very long hours and, and deliver an extraordinary number of babies on a daily basis because young doctors are not going into this field. Uh, there were concerns about the number of trauma doctors when, when the uh, Formosa Fun Park uh, incident occurred earlier this year. Uh, so th- there's definitely issues within the healthcare system, and these are serious issues. They do need to be fixed, uh, and especially given the aging population, um, the we do need good leadership in the next government over the national health insurance. It's it's definitely not steady as it goes with the NHI. All right. Well, we are going to keep it steady as it goes for the show. Uh, and so definitely a, a complicated system, a lot more to look at there. But we're just going to keep on moving and head on over steadily to the uh, last bit of the program, which is the silly bit, as we usually have. And uh, I'll be going over that in the absence of Gavin. And uh, what we got today is a bit of a historical preservation issue that's getting in the way of a construction project in Taipei. And what is being preserved? Well, a century-old sewage system. Worth preserving as well, why not? The Taipei city government has apparently halted a project to build new sewer covers after activists discovered this more than a century-old sewer system. So this uh, drainage system apparently dates back to 1904, so Japanese era. Uh, and uh, these activists are saying that it is of great historical value uh, because it was apparently among the first public sanitation systems built in Taiwan. Uh, so whenever you're the first of something that's important, even if you are the first sewer, still important. Uh, and uh, apparently uh, the the materials that were used to make it maybe go back even further. Uh, it looks like maybe they were used from the old Taipei wall of the city, and it was kind of repurposed once uh, Japan came and uh, started colonial rule here in Taiwan. So it sounds like they're not going to uh, go the whole nine yards and, uh, you know, cordon off the area and keep that sewer as pristine as possible. Uh, but uh, it's, it sounds like they're going to uh, take a little area, take a little slice and preserve that. So, you know, the construction is best of both worlds. The construction is going to move forward, but they're going to keep some aspect of this around. I think that they're going to kind of shelve it off uh, and uh, allow researchers to view it. Uh, uh, Ross, is this, is this, in your view, is a century-old uh, sewer relic uh, something worth putting a construction project on hold for? I think it's a breath of fresh air that historical sewers are being preserved. <laughs> uh, yeah, you do want to get the freshness of a 100-year-old sewer, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, Michael, what, what do you see here? Well, what I see is that all things relative. Uh, I'm British, and I can tell you that the, almost the entire sewer system of London is about 150 years old. Yeah. And still functioning. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Ta- Taiwan yeah. is kind of in the same boat as the U.S. in a lot of ways, where anything that is more than 20 years old in the U.S. is historical. And Taiwan is kind of in the same apple cart when it comes to that. 
but you know, it's 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 good to see preservation taken a little bit more seriously. It, it'll pay off in a couple hundred years. Well, hopefully, uh, somewhat more serious. Now, this won't reopen the debate about. Uh, uh, love for Japan, uh, given that it was built during the Japanese era, if it was from the the, the period when you know, after the Qing Dynasty surrendered Taiwan to the Japanese, so we might actually get into a, a debate about the merits of one type of sewer system or the other, which <laughs> would probably be a crappy situation. A crappy situation <laughs> yes. indeed. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to get ourselves out of that crappy situation and uh, head to the end of the show. You can send us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's just know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Ross Feingold. Thanks. And Michael Boyden. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.